If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. We sing songs at Christmas that say lines like we just sang, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. Or the song before, Noel, hope is born. Hope. I wonder what in your life right now feels hopeless. Where do you struggle to believe that anything good could potentially come from a situation that you're going through that just feels hopeless? As I said earlier, my wife and I were gone this week. We had the privilege of going to New York. We were just walking around the city enjoying so many amazing sights and sounds and cultural things. It was just beautiful. We went to St. Patrick's Cathedral. It was built in the 1800s, kind of in midtown Manhattan, and got to go inside. Beautiful cathedral, beautiful sculptures, beautiful artwork. Spent some time there looking at everything, and we were going as tourists to just enjoy the artwork. There were people there that were going as religious observers, going to mass, going to pray. We walked by one woman who was praying, uh, kneeling at a statue. And as we walked by the statue, you could see the name of the person that she was kneeling in front of. And it was St. Jude. St. Jude is the patron saint of lost causes. In Roman Catholicism, you would pray to St. Jude if you are going through something that you feel is a hopeless, lost cause. There's nothing that could ever bring the situation hope. And so you'd pray to St. Jude. That's why, by the way, that... Uh, Danny Thomas in the 1960s when he was founding a hospital in Memphis for children with incurable diseases. That's why he named it St. Jude. And as we watched this woman, as we were walking by and saw her weeping in front of St. Jude, it broke my heart thinking she's praying to the wrong person. St. Jude can't help in any way, shape, or form with whatever she's going through that she feels hopeless about. Jesus is the only one who can help. Jesus is the only one who can bring hope in the midst of hopelessness. My wife and I just wanted to scream out in that cathedral, you're praying to the wrong people. Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life. He's the only hope you have. It's not yourself, it's not your works, and it's no one else but Christ. I love this chapter in the Gospel of Mark because this chapter is all about hopelessness and lost 
causes. And Jesus is going to show up with power and remind us this morning and next Lord's Day, Lord willing, that there is no such thing as a lost cause. So I hope that you've come into this space with burdens on your shoulders, that you are able to identify as God. This is something that I feel hopeless about. I feel lost about. I feel like there's nothing that can help. And I hope this morning, I pray this morning that you would see Jesus, the only hope in the midst of hopelessness. Each individual in Mark chapter five is being held captive by something. The man that we're gonna look at today is held captive by demons. The one we'll look at next Lord's day is held captive by disease and death. And Jesus shows up in all of them and says, I can bring hope. He can bring it because he has power unlike anything we could possibly imagine. In fact, the word for power in Greek, uh, dunamis, where we get dynamite from, it's going to show up in this chapter for the very first time in the Gospel of Mark. This is all, this whole chapter is all about the power of Christ on display. And Mark is going to spend an extraordinary amount of time on these accounts, more so than most of his gospel, because he's going to want us to press in to see the details. He's going to slow down and give us a lot of ink on these specific situations because he wants us to slow down as we read and to see the power of Jesus on display. So let's see his power on display this morning. Mark chapter five, verse one. They came to the other side of the sea, that's Jesus and his disciples, into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I implore you by God, do not torment me. Because Jesus had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion because we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them. And they were all drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and in the country and the people came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore Jesus to leave their region. 
And as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Father, we ask that we would be amazed. We ask that we would be amazed as we see Christ in these verses. We ask that we would be amazed as we see his power and his love and his compassion. And God, we ask that we would be amazed as we see the response of the townspeople and we see ourselves in their response. Amaze us, thrill us with hope, Thrill us with compassion and love and joy. Convict our hearts. Do a work in us this morning that could only be explained supernaturally by the work of Christ alone. Holy Spirit, open our eyes now to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Jesus, our amazing, powerful Savior. Amen. This morning, we are going to see three different aspects of Jesus's power. Three different aspects of Jesus's power on display in Mark 5, verses 1 through 20. Number one, Jesus has the power to command demons. This is verses 1 through 13. Jesus has the power to command demons. Back in verse 1, they come to the other side of the sea. So you remember they were uh, through the, the storm at the end of chapter 4. They had made it safely. They were um, fearing for their lives and they made it across because of Jesus's power on display even there. They make it over to the other side of the sea. This is the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and they come to the country of the Gerasenes. Come to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, it's very interesting because in Matthew chapter 8, which is the parallel passage to this passage in Mark 5, Matthew writes that they actually come to a place called the Gadarenes. So Gerasenes here in Mark 5, Gerasenes also in Luke 8, and Gadarenes in Matthew 8. So which is it? Is it Gadarenes? Is it Gerasenes? Which is it? And the answer is it's both. The reason why I want you to know this is because there will be people who will say, see, the Bible has contradictions. Matthew says, Gadarenes, Mark and Luke say, Gerasenes, contradicts itself. It actually doesn't. It's very specific. In Mark 1, or Mark 5, verse 1, he says, into the country of the Gerasenes. The Gerasenes was the region. It was the country. The town is Gadara. So when Matthew writes they were going to the Gadarenes, they're going to the town of Gadara, but the region is the Gerasenes. It would be like saying, we live in LA, that's the region, but the town that we live in is Northridge. I live in Northridge. So Northridge or LA, which is it? It's both. That's why Mark writes, it's the country of the Gerasenes. It's Gentile country, as we read in verse 20. This is the Decapolis region. Decapolis, 10 cities in Greek. It's 10 Gentile cities that were together forming one big um, operation of commerce and economy together. It's not a Jewish territory at all. They're raising pigs here. This is clearly not a Jewish area. They come to the other side of the Gerasenes, and when they get out of the boat, immediately this man shows up who is probably bloodied, 
looks crazy, running quickly. Matthew and Luke tell us he's naked. He's been living among the tombs. He's been gashing himself with stones. I always picture this scene. The disciples in the boat have just experienced the worst storm that they have ever gone through in their entire lives. And they make it safely to land. And I just see in my mind, I see Peter and Andrew and the rest of the disciples saying, this this was incredible. This is amazing. I'm so glad as the boat hits the sand on the seashore, as they hit there, I just see Andrew just getting out of the boat saying, I, I'm, I'm so glad we're on dry land. I, you know what? He gets over. I, I, I don't think I'm getting back into a boat anytime soon. And then all of a sudden, this crazy man starts chasing them, running them down. And he goes, you know what? I think it's time that we go back in the boat and go across the other side. They, they can't, these disciples cannot catch a break. No matter what they do, no matter where they go, something's always staring them in the face that seems like it's going to destroy them. And so, this man shows up. I just see the disciples kind of take a step back, file behind Jesus. Let's see what Jesus is going to do. Mark tells us in verse 2, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met Jesus. A man. This is another area where people will say there's a contradiction in the Bible because Matthew chapter 8 tells us two men show up and talk to Jesus. Two men show up. Two demon-possessed men were there. Jesus heals two demon-possessed men. Mark says, a man. Is there a contradiction? Uh, No, there's not a contradiction. There would be a contradiction if Mark wrote only one man. He didn't say only one man. He's highlighting probably the more vocal of the two. In fact, again, in my sanctified imagination, I see Peter speaking to Mark, relaying this account to Mark. Peter was the eyewitness, and he's giving Mark the information. And so Peter says there were two guys, and they show up at the beach. We get over uh, onto the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We'd just gone through the storm. It was crazy. I get out of the boat. I'm thinking I'm never going sailing again. I see these two guys come up. I go back into the boat. I don't want to be on land. I'm terrified. And then one comes up to Jesus and starts speaking. And so Mark's writing down, two guys go, two guys go up to Jesus and then one starts speaking. And, and he kind of goes, you know what? Let's just, let's focus on the one. Circles the one. Let's talk about the one. I think the one's probably the more vocal. So Mark is not denying that there were two. Mark is just saying, let's highlight the more vocal. Maybe the spokesperson for both of these demon-possessed guys. Or maybe the one specifically who went back to the village to tell what Jesus had done. But there's no discrepancy here. It's easy to reconcile Matthew 8, Luke 8, and Mark 5. It's easy to reconcile. People are so quick to go, he says a man, Matthew says two men. See, the Bible has errors. It it doesn't. It's very easy to answer that. Reminds me of when JJ and I were talking with Marty. We're getting him ready to move and I asked him when's your actual move date when are you actually moving because we were doing little stuff helping him uh, tear stuff down get it ready for moving I said when's your actual moving date and he said it's Pearl Harbor Day Uh, he knows I love history we dialogue all the time about history he quizzes me on historical events so he goes so when is that Patrick and I goes January no and that's wrong no way it's uh, it's December 7th you're moving December 7th December 7th 1941 Pearl Harbor Day it's December 7th and he says are you sure about that? 
And I, I just trust Marty, so I go, no, I'm not. <laughs> when is it? He goes, you sure it wasn't December 8th? I'm going through my mind, no, no, December 8th, that doesn't sound right, right? The day that we'll live in infamy? No, that's not. It was, no, I'm, it was December 7th, Marty. And he tells a story to me and JJ that was just so fascinating. He went to Thailand, as you know, Marty loves traveling. He went to Thailand, and he was there, and he was talking to somebody about Pearl Harbor Day, and the individual said, yeah, it was December 8th, 1941. And he said, no, it was December 7th, 1941. And as he spoke with this individual in Thailand, he realized that the, 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 national, the international dateline, the divider of the days, it was December 8th for Thailand when the United States was attacked on Pearl Harbor Day. It was December 8th for them. Well, it was December 7th for us. Is there a discrepancy? No, it was both. And if you do enough work and you ask enough questions, you can figure out it's easy to reconcile. And that happens all over the pages of Scripture. There might be places that are seemingly contradictory, but if you just slow down and read, it's obvious and easy to explain it. And here's one of those, actually two, Gerasenes, Gatherings, Amen, Two Men. What is it? It's yes to all of it. Notice the description of this individual. He has an unclean spirit, verse 2. He has his dwelling among the tombs. So this guy is unclean in at least four ways. He has an unclean spirit, number one. He lives in the tombs, number two. He lived in the Decapolis region, that's Gentile area, number three. And number four, he lived near the raising of pigs. So this guy is absolutely unclean. Verse three, no one was able to bind him. They tried, but it was impossible. This sentence in verse 3 in Greek is so emphatically negative. To read it as literally as I could read it, verse 3 says this, no one at all, not anyone, could not ever bind him at all. It's absolutely impossible. This is the most hopeless situation that this individual could experience. Verse 4, people had tried to. He had often been bound with shackles and chains, but they'd been torn apart. He'd just broken them. No one was strong enough to subdue him. That Greek word for subdue is the word for the taming of wild animals or vicious beasts. In fact, some of your translations might actually use the word tame. No one was able to tame him. Verse 5, he's screaming night and day among the tombs in the country, in the region. I hear dogs bark at night and I can't fall asleep. I can't imagine what it's like to live in this town and hear two men screaming their heads off. He's gashing himself with stones, verse 5. Why is he doing this? Well, demons love destroying life. So there's an aspect where they're trying to kill this man. They're trying to mar the image of God. Maybe it's the actual man in his most lucid moments. He's trying to get the demons out, trying to get in there and get the demons out. Similar to what Eustace tried to do in the voyage of the dawn treader when he had been turned into a dragon and he tried to get inside and peel that dragon skin off. This man lives among the tombs, incredibly strong, screaming, gashing himself with stones, cutting himself naked. Matthew and Luke tell us that he's naked running around. Again, if I'm the disciple, I just think we can't catch a break and I'm just going to stand behind Jesus. 
and let him do the talking. Let him protect us. I just see a single file line of disciples huddled behind Jesus. And whoever's right behind Jesus, I see him getting out and going to the back of the line. Like, you deal with this. Verse 6, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and he bowed down before him. That word bowed down in Greek, proskuneo, it's to bow down in submission. It can be actually translated worship because it's saying you are the authority, I'm not. And I bow down in submission. You tell me what to do. Demons know they have no autonomy. They don't rule themselves. They cannot determine what they want to do. They have to submit themselves to the will of God. Love the way Martin Luther used to say it about Satan. The devil is still God's devil. The devil cannot, it's not God and the devil on equal playing field fighting each other. No, God is sovereign. He is the creator. He created Satan. He created the devil as a good angel and the devil chose to fall, but he's a created being. He's not on par with God. And they say, verse 7, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God. Remember the question in chapter four, the disciples asked, who then is this? It's being answered here in chapter five by the most unlikely of sources, by demons saying this is the son of God. He says, what business do we have with each other? Matthew chapter eight says, have you come to torment us before the time? Have you come to torment us before the time? What business do we have with each other? That's a phrase that means, are we understanding our relationship correctly? And then Matthew and Luke fill out what they're saying. Luke says, don't send us into the abyss. And Matthew says that they said, don't torment us before it's time. And that word time, remember we talked about this uh, several months ago. Time in Greek can be either chronos, which is just the movement of time, just like a watch, you know, just time, seconds moving forward, minutes moving forward. And then there's that word kairos, which is a uh, historic moment in time. So chronos is just the movement of time. It's history doing its thing. And then kairos is a moment in time. It's historic. So chronos is history and kairos is historic moment. That's what these demons are saying. Have you come to torment us before the historic moment? They know there's a historic moment coming for demons in demonic activity. Romans 16 talks about this. 2 Peter 2 talks about this. Revelation 19 talks about this. There's a day coming when the demons will be banished forever and sealed in, as Luke says, the abyss, in hell, in the lake of fire forever. And they will no longer torment humanity. They will be judged. They will be punished. Many people often think that Satan and the demons rule hell. They're, you know, they got the pitchforks and they're poking the people in hell. That's not true. Demons are being tormented in hell, and they will be forever. And so these demons say it's not the time yet. We know that historic time is coming, but you've given us some form of free reign here on earth, and it's not time yet. They know that they're doomed for all of eternity, but they have been given time now, and they're saying, don't send us into the abyss. Notice they don't want to go to hell. Demons don't want to go to hell. They know it's awful. Jesus had been saying to them, verse 8, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he asked them, what is your name? The man said, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion is the largest unit of a Roman army, five to 6,000 soldiers. So maybe there were 6,000 demons in this individual. Doesn't have to be. That could just be a lot of demons in this individual. There were many. We know that he says that specifically, 
My name is Legion, for we are many. Notice even there, just the confusion in the pronouns that this individual is using. My name is Legion, for we are many. It's staggering to look at the odds here. I think the reason why Mark is giving us all of this detail is because here are the odds. You've got thousands of demons versus Jesus. You've got a Gentile territory, pigs, Gentile men in the graves. This is absolutely home court advantage for the demons. The demons have everything going right for them, and Jesus has nothing going right for him. He has no sword, no army, no political power, no Samson-like strength, no weapons. He just has his words. And he says, come out. And they implore him, verse 10. Even though the home court advantage is stacked against Jesus and in favor of the demons, all Jesus has to do is speak a word and they will obey, they will submit. And they implore him, they beg him, verse 10. Don't send us out of the country, don't send us into the abyss. Let us stay here. Verse 11, there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby. The demons say, well, send us into the swine so we can enter them. And Jesus gave them permission. Again, they can't do anything on their own. They have to be given permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and about 2,000 of them, they were drowned in the sea. They were drowned. They wanted to destroy these two men. They are going to be commanded to leave. They still want to destroy life. They want to take the life of anything. And so they asked to take the lives of these pigs. 2,000 pigs... Uh, I read this week that normally herds would be around two to 300 pigs. So this is a massive herd of pigs. And Jesus doesn't conjure up any power, doesn't, no magical spells, no by the power of such and such. He just says, come out. Just a simple command. And Jesus allows them to go into the pigs. And in doing so, he shows the, de- the demon's purpose was beyond a shadow of a doubt, destruction and death. That's what they wanted. They drowned the pigs. I think it's very interesting because this is probably what the demons were hoping was, was going to happen to Jesus and the disciples in chapter 4. They were hoping that this would be the ultimate effect of the storm. That Jesus and the disciples would drown and die in the storm. And, and so since that didn't happen, let's at least drown the pigs. 2,000 pigs One commentator tried to do math to figure out how much this would cost. He estimated that it was $1.5 million. 2,000 pigs equals about $1.5 million. I don't know how you get that number. Maybe it's right. Maybe it's completely wrong. But it's a lot of pigs and it's a lot of money. And some people, some people have a big issue with Jesus allowing these demons to kill 2,000 pigs. Some people take a huge issue. I mean, this is very anti-PETA right now. This is why Jesus allowed that. This is a lesson that he's trying to teach us here in this verse. As valuable as the pigs are, and they are valuable because Jesus made them. You go through the Proverbs and you could read that God says, righteous people take care of their animals, take care of their pets. Righteous people care for animals because God cares for animals. But as valuable as the pigs are, one human life is so much more valuable. Think of Matthew chapter 6. Look at the birds of the air. I take care of them, God says. And how much more valuable are you than they? 
You're so much more valuable. These two men, their lives is worth much more than 2,000 pigs. The soul of one person is worth more than the amount of any animal or any money. Jesus has the power to command demons. Think of the darkest place imaginable. Think of the most wicked, evil, vile place that you can think of. Think of that place. Jesus is brighter than that, stronger than that, better than that. And he can and he will triumph in the darkest places on our planet and in the darkest places in your heart. He has the power to command demons. Number two, second aspect of Jesus' power. Number two, he has the power to change people. He has the power to command demons and he has the power to change people. This is verses 14 and 15. The herdsmen run away. They report in the city and in the country and the people came and see, to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed. He had been, and he's demon-possessed no more. He's sitting down. He's not running around in this frantic, uh, crazy, chaotic state. He's clothed. He's not naked anymore. He's in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. This Verses 14 and 15 are just kind of a before and after picture of this man. Uh, Verses 1 through 14 give us the before and the after. It's like those ads on TV for the exercise programs where they have the before and the after picture, right? You've seen those. The before picture is almost always black and white. And the person on that picture is like frowning, right? And they're hunched over. And then I think all they do is just stand up straight and smile and put the photo in color, for the after picture, and look at you, you look so much better. I think that's what we're seeing here, but in reality. You have a before and after, but it truly was devastating before, hopeless before, and the after picture, look at this. This man is clothed, he's in his right mind. He's speaking coherently. Just a paragraph earlier, Jesus had calmed a storm. And here he calms the evil storm that's in this man's heart. He delivers him. So much so that he comes to his senses. This is like that uh, phrase in Luke 15 when the prodigal son, in the midst of all of his sin and all of his filth, at the pigsty, he comes to his senses. This man's clothed and in his right mind. This is a question I think that Mark would want us to ask right now. Do you believe that Jesus still does this today? Do you believe that Jesus still does this today? Calm a storm of evil in your heart or of evil in your life. Do you believe that Jesus still does this today? Delivers and changes people. Carl Henry was one of the leaders of evangelicalism in the last century. He was editor of Christianity Today, which was a magazine uh, publication that was Really, it was a desire to fight against a very liberal publication called The Christian Century. So here's The Christian Century. Uh, that's a, uh, the past. And now we're moving on to liberal Christianity. And so Carl Henry worked in editing the, the Christianity Today publication to say, no, 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 Christianity Today is still alive and well. Jesus is still working in the exact same way. He was invited with uh, 200 other religious leaders to a luncheon in honor of a man called Karl Barth, 
Karl Barth was also a very famous 20th century theologian. He was a brilliant theologian. He said some good things. He said some really not good things. And they were going around talking about who they were as they were being introduced at Karl Barth's luncheon in his honor. Came time for Karl Henry to stand up and say who he was, introduce himself, say uh, what he was doing in ministry. He got up and he said, I am the editor for Christianity Today. And Karl Barth responded jokingly, sarcastically, did you say Christianity Today or Christianity Yesterday? Everyone chuckled, everyone laughed, mocking this man's belief that Jesus is still working. And without skipping a beat, Carl Henry said, yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same. He has the same power, the same power in your life. Might not be as instantaneous as this display, but it's just as powerful. He's working today. Do you believe it? Do you believe that he can calm physical storms and metaphorical storms? Jesus' power commands demons. Number two, it changes people. And then the third aspect of Jesus' power, number three, Jesus' power demands a response. This is verses 16 through 20. Jesus' power demands a response. He has the power to command demons. He has the power to change people. And his power, number three, demands a response. People meeting Jesus are never in the scriptures, ever indifferent to him. No one ever just says, yeah, take it or leave it. He's nice, whatever. You either fall down and worship him or you want to crucify him. No one is ever indifferent to Jesus. What do you expect the town? How would you expect them to respond? What would you expect as they see this man sitting down, clothed in his right mind? How would you expect the townspeople to react? I just see a party, right? In my head, I just see, praise the Lord, this man's okay. And also, praise the Lord, he's not going to keep me up at night screaming in the tombs. Just, if you were a real estate agent back then in that country, there's no way you were selling any property with this guy screaming, right? Like, you can't get anything sold. And now he's in his right mind. I just, I can't help but think, this has got to be the greatest day for this town. Greatest day. But like is often the case for me when I read scripture, I'm wrong in my assumption. Because verse 15, it says, when they see everything that's happened, end of verse 15, they became frightened. They're not happy. They're not joyful. They're not excited. They're not hopeful. They're scared. Phobia. Phobeo, Greek word for fear, deep fear. Something so deep inside them that they will make a decision because they're so afraid that will actually leave them susceptible to even more demonic attacks. It's very similar to the disciples in the storm. Remember the disciples were afraid of the storm and then when the storm was stilled, they became even more afraid. Same thing here. These townspeople were afraid of these two demon-possessed guys and now they're even more afraid. They're even more afraid. Why? Just like last week, I think they're more afraid, just the exact same reason the disciples are more afraid. The disciples were afraid of the storm 
And then they realize there's a man in our boat who can stand up and say a word and the storm is gone. He has so much more uncontrollable, unmanageable power. That's terrifying. Same thing here. They were terrified of the demon-possessed men. They couldn't control them. They couldn't bind them. They couldn't chain them. But now they see a man who is able to do that with just a word. He's more powerful than those demons. And they're terrified. When what you are afraid of is conquered by someone else with just a word, you become more afraid of that person. But there's a second reason why they're scared and a reason why they will ask Jesus to leave. It's in verse 16, actually. Those who had seen it described them to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed men. And all about the swine. That phrase, all about the swine, is actually in the emphatic position in the Greek. So if you want to emphasize something, you put it at the very beginning of the sentence. And that's at the beginning. So all about the swine, that's what's first on their mind. Their greatest concern was not these two individuals. Their greatest concern was their swine, their economy. We've just lost $1.5 million. Their love for their money, their love for their riches, their security, and what they can get is greater than their love for Jesus. This is the epitome of what we've been studying this semester in small groups. This is the epitome of idolatry. When you love something other than Jesus, more than Jesus, and that love crowds out your soul and displaces him as the greatest treasure of your life. This is Jeremiah 2. When you forsake the fountain of living water and you hew out for yourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is the parable of the soils displayed in real time for all to see right before the disciples' eyes. The townspeople love their economy, their safety, and their money more than Jesus. And so they want him to leave. And look at what their sinful hearts ultimately end up getting. We always say at our church, sin makes you stupid. Look at this. Look at how ludicrous this is. They would rather be filthy rich while at the same time being susceptible to demonic attack at any time. Unable to do anything about it. Than to have Jesus with them and be poor. But if you have the one with you who commands the wind and the waves. The one who commands supernatural forces, demons. You have one who could provide for not only your safety, but also for your economy. He can provide for your every need. But they can't see that. They're blinded by their sin. They only see that what they love is gone. Oh, that we would be people that would say, no matter what I lose, no matter what it costs, if I just gain Jesus, I have everything. And like the psalmist in Psalm 23, I am not lacking anything that I need if I have him. So what do they do? Verse 17, they implore Jesus to leave. They implore him to leave. Same word that's used in verse 10. They're begging him. So the demons beg Jesus. They beg Jesus. One author put their imploring into a poem. I love it. He says this, Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we swine. Oh, get you hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine. His soul, what care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole? Since we have lost our swine. 
What do you value most in this life? What do you value most? Jesus can deliver you from anything if you would come to him. If you would say, I am hopeless, I am helpless, and I need help. I need your salvation. He could deliver you from anything. But if you send him away, there might be a time when it will be too late and you have no hope at all. The people didn't want him to stick around. But verse 18, as he's getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed, who's demon-possessed no more, is imploring him. So the demons implore Jesus. The townspeople implore Jesus. And now this demon-possessed man who is demon-possessed no more implores Jesus that he might accompany him. I want to go with you. The people didn't want Jesus to stick around, but this man sure does. And so if Jesus is going to leave, he says, please let me go with you. Please let me go with you. So many reasons why he would plead with Jesus for this. What if the demons come back? Just think about that. What if the demons come back? You need to stay here so that I'm protected, that I'm safe. You don't even know me and you've loved me this way. I want to be with you forever. In verse 19, again, my thought would be that Jesus would go, sure, let's add to the group. Verse 19, I think, is one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. He did not let him. Just think about this man. Jesus, can I go with you, please? I know that my whole town thinks you're crazy. I don't. I love you and I want to be with you. Probably the sense of absolute hopefulness and excitement. Can I, can I go with you? And probably this man is thinking, absolutely, he's going to say yes, because I want to be a follower. And then Jesus, I think, with the most compassionate tone possible, looks at this man and says, no, you can't. I just see this man's face completely change, just tears. Why? Questions about the goodness of Jesus. Wait, you, when the demons asked you for permission to go into the pigs, you said, sure. When the people in my town said, will you leave? You said, sure. And when I, a follower of you, say, can I go with you? You say, no. This doesn't seem fair at all. Why, Jesus? Jesus says hard words. But a heart of faith will hear those hard words as loving and caring. And this man knows that. And so he hears the words of Jesus. You can't come with me, but go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he realizes in his heart of hearts, it is more satisfying to do what Jesus says than to do what I want. He doesn't kick against these words. Even though they're hard words, he receives them and he does them because he knows it's more satisfying to do what Jesus says than to do what you want. This man is told to go and tell. Up until this point, Jesus has been telling people left and right, don't tell, don't tell people. But here it's go and tell. Why? Because we're in Gentile territory. There's no Jewish messianic expectation. Nobody's going to crowd around him and go, you must be the Messiah. If they go to Gentile territory and this man says, I found this guy who healed me, people go, great, that's awesome. 
Nobody's going to connect that in Gentile territory to messianic expectations. Also, there's no more room for a disciple. We have 12. Jesus picked 12, handpicked them by the will of the Father. So you can't be a disciple the way that they are disciples. We have 12, no more. But though he can't be a formal disciple of Jesus, following him like the 12 do, he actually becomes the first missionary that Jesus sends out. This demon-possessed man, who is demon-possessed no more, wanted to be with Jesus. It's the same language of discipleship. I want to be with you. But he's given a mission of evangelism, and in doing so, he actually helps other people become disciples and proves to be a disciple of Jesus. This is the evidence of discipleship. Notice verse 20. He went away. He began to proclaim in the Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone is amazed. This is the evidence of being a disciple. You say, I want to be with Jesus, and I want to speak of Jesus. That's what discipleship is. I want to be with you, and I want to speak of you. True faith demonstrates itself in obedience, and this man obeys. Even the hard words of Jesus, he obeys. And just think about this obedience. Think about him coming home. His front door is locked, as his family has been terrified of anyone coming in. His wife has lost her husband. His kids have lost their father. And one day there's a knock at the door and they peer through and they see. It looks like dad. They open the door. He's clothed. He's not bloodied. He's not foaming at the mouth. He's not crazy. They open the door and his wife starts crying and the kids come hug his legs And they say, this is what we've been praying to the gods for. We've been praying that the gods would heal you. And he gets down on his knees with his kids and he says, kids, it's not the gods. I met a man named Jesus and he healed me. I met Jesus. And everyone's amazed. This man's ministry actually takes effect in chapter 7, verse 31 and chapter 8, verse 1. We see that when Jesus goes back to the region of the Decapolis, everyone knows who he is because of this man. Can I just ask you, when was the last time that you've done this? When was the last time that you went and told people about Jesus? It's it's not hard to do. Just open your mouth and speak about what great things the Lord has done for you. How awesome is the message of grace? One of the biggest blessings of traveling with my wife anywhere we go is we're just always able to tell people about Jesus. And there's never any fear in doing that. There's never any anxiety in doing that. I love just talking to people about Jesus. And as I'm asking questions, she's asking questions. We're bouncing off of each other. On the plane rides over to New York, on the plane rides back, the Uber rides that we took, we get to hear, we met somebody from Nepal who's uh, climbed Mount Everest twice and he's Buddhist. And we got to talk to him about Jesus and we got to tell him about grace. He said, all religion's the same. You're a Christian, great. All religion's the same because it's all about how we can just love each other and be better people and be good people and God will love us. And we said, what do you think the Bible's about? Let's talk about the Bible. What do you think the Bible's about? Well, it's just a book about how to be a better person. What if I told you the book actually says you can't be a good person? This book does not say try hard, be a better person. This book says you're hopeless on your own. You can do nothing to get to God on your own. And that's why Jesus in his kindness says, I'll do the work for you. 
I'm going to come as a human. I'm going to live a perfect life. I'm going to die on the cross taking your penalty. I'm going to give you my perfect record of righteousness. I'll do it all for you. Just trust me. Love me. Follow me. I've done it all. We talked to a Muslim. He said, I haven't prayed my fifth prayer today. I haven't taken my trip to Mecca. I said, what happens if you don't take your trip to Mecca and you die? He said, well, the good thing is my kids can take that trip for me and it works for me. I said, so they can do the work for you. Guess what? Jesus did the work for me. Jesus actually paid it all for me. And it wasn't some crazy random trip to Mecca. It was a trip from heaven to earth where he loved me with an unconquerable love. Guys, it's not hard to talk about Jesus. Talk about what you marvel about. If you marvel about Jesus, you will marvel your mouth off with people and just tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. And if you don't marvel about Jesus, it's no wonder you don't talk to people about him. It's no wonder you don't talk to people about him. So can I just ask you, have you forgotten the goodness of the gospel? Have you forgotten God's mercy towards you? This text, I think, would tell us we need to acknowledge Jesus' authority. He is still this powerful. Be awestruck by his power. I also think that this text would tell us that we should be aware of the sinfulness in our own hearts, just like the townspeople, that we tend to want something other than Jesus all the time. But I think the ultimate effect of this text that it should have on our lives is we should join this man in being aware of owing our very lives to Jesus. <laughs> is this not our story? We weren't living among the tombs. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. Before conversion, we're dead. We're destroyed by the power of sin. We're held captive in darkness. We're in bondage to sin. We're enslaved. We're not shackled with chains. Our hearts are enslaved to sin. And we can't get out. Just like this man, whatever he's trying to do, he cannot get himself out. I love the way John Calvin says it. Though we are not tortured by the devil as this man was, yet the devil holds us as his slaves until the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. Oh, naked, torn, and disfigured, we wander about until he restores us to soundness of mind. We were enslaved, but we've been delivered. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness, Colossians 1, 12 through 14. We formerly walked in darkness, Ephesians 5, 8, but now we walk as children of light. Why? Because of our goodness? Because of our ability? No, because Jesus rescued us. And if you're here this morning and you do not know your alienation, you don't know that you're enslaved to sin, you don't know that you need deliverance, today is the day to wake up and to know you are stuck in your sin and you cannot save yourself and you are in serious peril because your sin demands death and judgment. And Jesus has paid the price for your sin, for my sin, for all of us. Come to him. Come to him. And then if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you know him and you love him and you follow him, then you have a story to tell just like this man. J.C. Ryle says, all are not intended to preach, but all can walk the steps of the man of whom we have been reading. All are not intended to preach, right? Not everyone is a preacher. Not everyone is a pastor. That's fine. But everyone can walk the steps of this man. Why? Because all he does is tell others what great things the Lord has done for you.
And you and I get to tell an even greater story than this man. This man knew nothing of Jesus dying on a cross at this point in his life. He knew nothing of that. There will be another man whose skin will be torn, who will be attacked by demonic activity, all of the powers of hell. He will be cursed, ostracized, cut off, shackled, not with chains, but with nails through his hands and his feet, pinned to a tree, not just to be among the tombs, but to actually have his lifeless body placed in one. But he won't stay dead. He will rise from the dead, he will conquer sin and death, and he will offer us salvation. I pray that God would protect us from becoming overly familiar with and unaffected by how much the Lord has done for us and how much mercy he has shown us. As I grow older, I don't want to become less amazed, but more amazed at Jesus. And we, like this man, say, Jesus, I want to be with you. I want to be with you right now where you are. And Jesus says to us, like this man, not yet, but go and tell. And one day I will be with you. And we will enjoy sweet communion and fellowship with the triune God forevermore. There's only two groups of people. People like these two demon-possessed men who know that they need saving and delivering and receive that from Jesus. Or people like the townspeople who say, you know what, I love what I have. Maybe it's money for you. Maybe it's status, success, relationship, whatever it is. I love this. Thank you, Jesus, for the offer, but I actually enjoy what I have, and I'd rather that you leave. Pleading for him to leave might make you more comfortable in the short term. You remain the master of your own life. You don't have to kill your will and submit it to someone else. You don't have to be laid open and bare before him, but in the long run, it will lead to your destruction. So rehearse the gospel every day. Once we were lost, once we were captive, once we were dead in darkness, and all along we thought we were just fine, not even knowing that the end of our sin was death. But Jesus, being rich in mercy, loved us, died for us, rose again to give us life, calls us to himself to be satisfied by him alone. And so together this morning we say, if I have Jesus and nothing else, I have everything I need to be satisfied. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the reality of these two men and what they experienced and how they went through something that was so tragic, so enslaving, so dark, so desperate, and yet you brought hope into a desperate situation. Bring hope into our lives. Hope for salvation. Hope for sanctification. Bring hope. You have power over supernatural forces. You have power over the darkness that's in our heart. You can change us. And that power demands something. We either say, I want to be with you, or we say, could you please leave me alone? But all of us make that choice. God, please help us to know clearly today. Help us to be honest with our own hearts today what decision we're making right now. And Jesus, open our eyes to see our enslavement to sin and to see that you can bring salvation. And so to you and to you alone belong the glory and the honor and the power, both now and forevermore. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.